Evening, Gruber Smith, Bud Elliott, back again, back again, twice in the same day, actually, but uh, Tag team. here to do it nothing yeah. <laughs> Could have taken it at that play in that direction as well. Anyways, we're back again to do another Nolcast tonight. Excited as always. We'll tip our hat to Louisiana Hot Sauce. Three simple ingredients, one fantastic product. Title sponsor of the Nolcast and Bud. We've got uh, all sorts of things to get to tonight, so looking forward to it. We do, man. Let, let's... Uh... I guess first we have to start off with what we were talking about before we hit record, which was that Ronald Acuna has suddenly decided he's not going to swing at balls anymore, only swing at strikes. He's cut his uh, out of the strike zone uh, rate by like half, which is not normal. And uh, yeah, we, we got a lot of Braves fans on this podcast, no doubt, but I uh, figure we should probably focus on uh, focus on what people come here for, which is Florida State sports and primarily Florida State football. As always, brought to you by Louisiana Hot Sauce. Louisiana Hot Sauce, three simple ingredients, one awesome product. Where do you want to start tonight? Obviously, it was short ball, but like where, where within that? Let's do the youth camps. I mean, I think there's been a lot of people that have uh, put out stuff tied to these, but it, it's just an interesting idea. Some of our listeners, by the way, uh, with, like their, their kids were able to go to these. Oh, so it's really awesome. It, I've really enjoyed it, but from afar, um, look, I, I'm not going to make too much of this. not going to decide whether or not you win a game next year or anything else, but... Uh, it's it's also cool to see a, a kid on Twitter think a coach that you know you know is never going to in all likelihood be recruited by Florida State or whatever else, but gets the opportunity to go and get high uh, you know high level coaching by all counts of people uh, that have been at the camps. They've been a organized, well structured uh, event, and you know there's more to it. This is not just all a benevolent coaching society that's traveling around the state, uh, definitely. But uh, I think these have gone really well, and probably. Gotten some nice, uh, you know, PR points overall. Some good points in the community. It's been great to see some of the uh, alums that have come through, both you know, recent and uh, and a little bit more dated. So, uh, all in all, these appear to have been a really successful venture. Yeah. So, if y'all don't know, Florida State did a series of uh, youth camps are actually still going on uh, throughout the state. They brought basically like their entire staff. They they, they bust them down. So that's coaches, office staff, recruiting staff. They basically just packed up the offices and 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 did a uh, did a huge you know, kind of barnstorming the state, if you will. Why would they do this? Ingram said it's probably not going to bring you anybody for this year. That's probably fair. And we know they're not allowed to talk to high school coaches right now at these events because why? Well, we're in a dead period. So Ingram, why why would they do this? I I have an idea. First of all, it is goodwill. Second of all, if you're Mike Norvell, I think you have some confidence and some justified belief in the administration that they're going to give you some time because you're not screwing up some of the things behind the scenes that Willie Taggart's staff screwed up. Not to say they're perfect behind the scenes, but I think it's a little more buttoned up behind the scenes. And I think FSU has stepped up its level of support as well in a way that it didn't support Taggart as far as you know office staff. I, I, I had a buddy who was at one of these camps and he's like, man, how many more full-time people does Norvell have working for him than Willie did? So, uh, well, certainly a couple more. <laughs> uh, there's no doubt, although probably he'd like even more if they didn't just go through the pandemic. The reason they do this, if you want the cynical reason, the, the reason why I, I think it directly relates to football in the near term, you know who runs a lot of these youth teams? Some of these seven-on-seven coaches. Do you know what some of these seven-on-seven coaches do? They drive kids to campus. A lot of these seven on seven coaches are just, you know, good dudes who are just looking out for the best interest of their, of their kids. Some of these dudes are a little bit shady, but regardless, 
In any, in many cases, you have to deal with them if you want to sign a player. Getting to meet some of these, uh, what's what's a good word for this? Handler, street agent, uh, youth advisor, something like that. Getting to meet some of these guys in person is uh, is really important. And I think they were able to make a lot of handshakes and relationships at these camps. Not implying anything nefarious, obviously, but it is you were playing catch up. You're behind the eight ball in this state still because it's the first time in many cases that you've been able to meet players, uh, not players, but you know coaches and and and, uh, and key figures in person. And they're trying to play catch up. And I think this was a good move. For sure, it was a good move in the eyes of other schools, who I know for a fact complained about it. Not like their fans complained about it, but like their schools were like, hey, complained about it. And basically, the response that I was told uh, from FSU was, yeah, pound sand. Because we are not meeting with high school coaches and we're not meeting with recruitable prospects. Everybody is not prospect eligible yet. They're all youth. Primarily, we're dealing with elementary and some middle school kids here. So deal with it. I think if you're pissing people off, though, that's probably a sign you're, you're, and it's within the rules what you're doing. That's probably a sign that what you're doing is, is a pretty decent idea. You know, everybody works within the same rules. Uh, if you have found a creative way to work within those rules and, and you know, uh, either deepen existing relationships or create new ones, uh, then that's fantastic. And you're right. There are, there are these uh, groups of guys, some with fantastic intentions, some, you know, most of them pretty well-intentioned, but, uh, you know, they're all people who play a part in the process of a recruitment kid. So, uh, I think we're accurate to point out that you're not, you know, you're not out there trying to find a tackle for the 2023 class. Although, if one wants to come, that is not. They're not really they're not <laughs> anti right. that. <laughs> if you do happen to find them, uh, and they're not going to turn it down, but you may, you know, you may make a relationship that gives you a chance to, you know, get a get an official visit on a 2023 kid or something like that. I mean, I I do think that there's a, a level here uh, where you're giving back to the community, coaching kids. That's great. Maybe in 10 years, you make a relationship with, with somebody that ends up playing wide receiver for you or, you know, playing wide receiver for Dillingham if he's a head coach somewhere, et cetera. But I do think that there's a, you know, maybe a little bit more of a immediate return on or in mind with some of the relationships that you're making, enhancing and uh, just using time well spent, you know, living within the existing rules. And, uh, hey, I think this is you know, you got to be creative. You got to do things that other people haven't thought about. And, and this is that. And, uh, you know, we're not going to make too much out of a series of youth football camps, but uh, certainly like some of the broader themes that are tied to this. Yeah, it, it seems like they're trying to to win on the margins in certain ways. This is not a team that I think you or I would project to win a whole lot of games this fall. We know that when you fire a guy after just two years in the early signing period era, uh, by the way, shout out to Matt Baker for some interesting tweets today on, on the, the process of signing that contract. Although I, I think that's more standard than people realize. This is the Willie Taggart contract that you're referencing. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you decide to, to ask somebody for just two years in the ESP era, and you're making two coaching changes in a three-year period, or well, really just you know, kind of two-year period, you're going to nuke your roster for a couple of years. Doesn't mean it was the wrong choice. I feel like I've said this on this podcast a million times. I think other podcasts are probably coming around to what we're saying now. Um, they're kind of coming back to us, as opposed to us going to them as far as expectations, which tells me we're on the right track and have been on the right track. Uh, but you're going to nuke your roster for a while. It's going to be hard to dig out. It's going to take a long time to dig out. Finding the marginal wins 
that are not on-field wins is pretty important because you might set yourself up to outplay your record on the recruiting trail if you happen to have some kind of decent record or even a hard-fought, disappointing record. So um, before we we move on, um, and, and this is something we've talked about, but I think it's worth reiterating here uh, that Florida State has a really good chance to do uh, well in recruiting, to sign the top 10 class. Uh, we mentioned this about a month ago, but I, I do think it's worth reiterating as both of us talk to uh, both people involved uh, inside different programs who cover different programs. You know, Florida State's going to have the classic sales line of playing time. And if you're a program like Florida State and you're looking to make your way, you know, back up the pyramid of college football and find your place uh, that you think is yours, you're going to have to have that pitch and be able to sell it. You're also going to be able to sign more kids than a vast majority of schools this year. The the COVID exemption has thrown some of these rosters into such a state. Florida State's going to be able to sign a full class. A lot of schools aren't. And a lot of schools, when you, when you say that, you might think, oh, well, and they're not going to sign a full class. Maybe they're going to sign 21. Maybe they're going to sign even 19. There's some ACC school, bud, that at least at this point in time, you and I think might sign 13, 14 kids this year. I mean, there, there are going to be some exceptionally small classes out there. Yeah, I've been doing some research for, for a piece. So I've been talking to some guys within our network, also been talking to some coaches out there. You know, we, we, we had a school tell us we're probably going to sign like 13 kids and half of them are going to be from the portal. That's a school FSU competes with players. You know, guys, that, that's a pretty big deal because what that does for you is if, if just every school around you is signing just a, a, a couple fewer players, that bumps up the quality of high school player that you're able to take. FSU went pretty portal heavy this last cycle. Uh, but because Mike Norvell, at least from what I understand, believes that the administration is going to be behind him and it's going to allow him to rebuild on the correct timeline, they're going to be able to take more high school players this year and and do the slow build thing. I don't think they're going to take seven or eight transfers next cycle, right? So to me, this is this is really fascinating. I, I also want to point out what I what I noticed in some of my research was your your top like 14 classes, even last year, we're about as good as they normally are, class for class. So your number one class was about as good as your number two class normally is. Your, or excuse me, your, your one and your two is about the same as your two and, and all this stuff. But interestingly, once you got to like 15, there was a pretty huge drop-off. So to wit, Texas, number, number 15 class last year had 247 points in the, in the 24-7 composite, right? So 15th with, with 247 points. Where would that have ranked them in the previous year? Interestingly, they would have been 20th. So the number 15 class in 21 would have been the 20th class in 20. It would have been the 18th class in 19. And I think it would have been about the 20th class in 2018. That is one of the reasons why I believe FSU has a chance to sign a top 10 class, because I just don't think the competition is going to be quite as fierce out there. Now, I don't think they can, they can sign a top you know, top five class, I think that, that's kind of crazy because the, the very, very best schools are still not going to load up on tons of transfers. They're going to cherry pick a couple select transfers. And for the most part, they will continue to clean up and get the very best high school kids. But there's going to be enough schools out there who are not doing what Florida State's doing. And they're not going to take that many high schoolers. And I feel like you're going to be able to get a lot more players into this class who are either you know low four-star range or high three-star range 
who can help you if you feel like they, they fit your system. And that should be, that should be pretty interesting here, how they're able to, to go about doing this. I also think it's important to think, to think about spacing. So a lot of these schools out there are taking and they say, hey, we have so many freshmen because COVID rendered everybody a freshman all over again, if you guys don't understand, right? Like last year didn't count against eligibility. Because FSU did not have that big of a freshman class last year, and because of all, all the transfer and turnover that they've had, they don't have as many freshmen on their roster or quote-unquote freshmen on their roster as other teams do. And so they're not quite as hamstrung by the COVID situation. So I think they're going to be able to take a, a fairly decently sized class in 22, which is this year's recruiting class. And they're also kind of laying, laying the groundwork to take a decent sized class there in 23. That's not to say they will not use the portal. I think the staff's always going to use the portal. Uh, but I don't think that we're going to have a situation in the next two years where half of the class is portal. And this should allow Norvell and company to lay the foundation for the future roster in, in a pretty effective manner, in my opinion. It'll still be a slow build, but there's there's a blueprint for a build here that is is pretty evident. Real quickly, one individual who became part of the official roster is uh, Andrew Parchment has been announced uh, officially. Parchment, uh, I think he declared for Florida State either December 30th, 31st, one of the final days of the year there. Uh, a guy who's kind of bounced around a little bit, went to uh, Northern Illinois, went to community college, went to Kansas and had a really kind of, I don't know if breakout years is fair uh, to describe his first year, but I think he was um, fresh, you know, newcomer of the year or something like that. Offensive newcomer in the year in the Big 12, uh, 831 yards on 65 passes, and then had a lot of production fall off last year. Now, some of that's tied to the quarterback play uh, that was with him, but a, a guy who's you know, played fairly well in, uh, in the Big 12 out there and originally from Fort Lauderdale, uh, officially comes back to Florida and play for Florida State. Pretty cool stuff there. I, let me ask you this. Is, in your mind, is, is Parchment, is he receiver one for you? And uh, if so, what, what kind of stat line are, are you expecting? I think there's a very good chance that he's receiver one. I mean, I'm not necessarily thrilled with the prospectus of that, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you can really necessarily count on uh, one the freshman to be it, and you know uh, nobody on the roster has necessarily displayed it at this point in time. Uh, I would like to see if he is. I'd like to see something, you know, approaching what he did uh, his first year out there. Now I don't know if you're going to get uh, quite the yardage of production from him, but uh, if he's your your main option, yeah, I mean something like that, something like 65 balls for 800 yards somewhere in that area is what I would think you'd want to get it out of him. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably fair. Uh, I I know some people were arguing earlier on Twitter that, I mean, granted it's Twitter, so you know, lunatic fringe that it is. We, we love y'all. I, I I'm not sure that I see him having a thousand yards. Maybe he will, but it, that that's not that's not all that common still. And this offense does seem to like to spread the ball around. Although at at Memphis, Norvell did have some guys who they chucked the ball to a whole lot. So maybe maybe I'm wrong on that. But I, I think there's a decent chance he's your receiver one. I mean, if it's not him, who is it? You know, Pookie? Is it? There's not that many other options who you th- who you'd be at all happy with if they were your top receiver. So uh, I can certainly see him being being wide receiver one in this case. Yeah, kind of kind of crazy. Uh, we'll have to see what it looks like. I mean, again, a guy who's had some production, who's had uh, a little bit of a rough year, uh, but uh, you know, we'll see what it looks like. Six foot three, kind of long. 
Uh, lengthy guy. You can go look at his plays. He's got some decent explosion to him. Uh, we'll have to see. But uh, officially part of the roster, and uh, we'll continue to monitor Mr. Parchment's success and where he stands. Uh, before we move on any further, don't need to uh, question where these guys stand. Chad and Shannon, great partners of the podcast and uh, people that we're ever so fortunate to be able to work with. Yeah, if they were receivers, they would both have over 1,000 yards for us. There's no doubt about it. Over 150 loans for you know, mortgages and refis through the legendary team, 844-FSU-LOAN, 844-FSU-LOAN. Give Shannon and Chad a call. Guys, just, just an awesome team, personable, you know, real folks, awesome rates, knowledge of the industry. When you give them a call, get chat a little bit about the Knowles. I know Shannon's really excited for, for this season. I got to text Chad to see how he's feeling right now, especially after the latest uh, grad transfer at offensive line. So uh, my guess is he's probably pretty excited about, about that. It usually is in the text thread. So very excited about that as well. Give him a shout, 844-FSU-LOAN. You will not regret it. And I know uh, at least one of our uh, one of our questions tonight from our listeners uh, has already done so as well. You know, we recorded we recorded this morning. We were ending our call and about to go about our, our separate day. And then you started talking to me about the, 20, the 2017 recruiting class, bud. Uh, always an interesting topic of conversation and kind of walked across a couple different measurements or metrics rather that give you an idea as to uh, just how kind of disappointing that is. My friend on Twitter um, lo- loves playing around with, with, with stats and, and, and data, and I, I like talking recruiting analytics with him. It's uh, Dr. Marty Lawrence. He, uh, he published this, this piece. It's on his, uh, his GitHub, right? And you can find that Dr. Marty Lawrence if you want to. This is, you know, it's sort of, sort of an academic paper. Uh, it's, it's pretty statistically rigorous, and, and I'm not going to, uh, not going to go through the entire thing, obviously, because it's, it's, it's his piece. But basically, he's looking at uh, what the expected draft value is for every possible recruiting spot. So whether you're the number one recruit in the country or whether you're like the number three or 4,000 recruit in the country and correlating that with, with what your draft pick is expected to be. And we have like 20-something years now of recruiting data. I think more recent recruiting data is a little more reliable <laughs> than some of the old stuff. But still, so for instance, the top draft value over expectation player ever was any guess? Uh, yeah, I'm sure as soon as you say it, it'll it'll come to mind. But uh, nothing at the top of my tongue right now. Baker Mayfield. Oh, of course, of course. I, I heard he once drove an Uber. Actually, uh, <laughs> crazy story. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so Baker Mayfield went went number one overall. Um, Obviously, Joe Burrow was up there too. He was a, a kind of a lower rated four star player, but still four star. Mayfield was the number one overall guy who was uh, rated outside the top 1,000 in the country, ended up being really, really nice in that Lincoln Riley offense. So, interestingly, I, I thought, uh, I thought what, what Marty was doing here was, was pretty fun. And uh, I went and looked, and he also listed out the best and worst recruiting classes ever. Uh, as it related to individual recruiting classes and the draft. And now Florida State is not the worst on this list. They certainly had some disappointing classes uh, in, in some recent years. But ultimately, the worst team in this by far was was Texas. Like they're just, they're way, way at the bottom. Um, almost twice as bad as any other team out there. Like Tennessee was minus 695. Texas was like minus 1300 which is hard to do. 
but I found the, the, the individual class is pretty interesting here. So top 10 classes of all time, as far as draft value to expectation, uh, Bama 2017, number one, no real surprise there. They've had like nine first rounders off that team, off that one class. So that if you do that, there's a pretty good chance, Ingram, that you will have a decent season or two in the years following signing a class like that. Uh, Ohio State 2013 and 2015, Texas A&M 2010, which is actually before, before what's his name got there, the, the air raid guy. This is actually a class signed by Mike Sherman. They ended up hitting on a ton of good offensive linemen in that class. Sherman was a hell of an offensive line evaluator. Uh, Louisville 2011, NC State 2014, Iowa 2016, Washington 14, Stanford in 14, and then Washington in 2011. The worst classes of all time. Here they are at bottom 10 from 10th to, to, to the very, very bottom one. Tennessee 2015, Auburn 2010, Old Miss 2016, Texas 2012, Florida 2010, Florida State 2017, Texas 2011, USC 2013, USC 2010, and then Texas 2010. That Texas 2010 class, by the way, whoo boy, not, uh, not totally living up to expectations there, in my opinion. But I wanted to deep dive on this. So Florida State, 2017 class this is the uh, the last class signed by Jimbo. Um, it was a class that most people expected, including myself, assuming they could keep some of the attitudes in this class in check to to provide a decent foundation for some some wins going forward. And ultimately, they they did not. So you want to run through this real fast? This is kind of totally closing the book on it because I'm pretty sure nobody else from this class is still in college, or if they are, they're they're not in college uh, with. With the Knowles, just looking through it. I guess Warner's still in college. Uh, yeah, yeah, Warner, and then Dur- Durden's moved his way on up to Raleigh. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. Cam Akers, that was a hit. Um, didn't you know? Didn't live up to his recruiting position as far as where he got drafted. But running backs typically don't, and the rankings have been slowly adjusting to that. Like, there's just not that many five star running backs. Running backs are not that important in football. Uh, they're one of the more devalued positions in the league. I think you're starting to see that a little bit in college, but to a lesser extent, because college is a different game. Marvin Wilson went undrafted. Josh Kando, five-star player, number 10 in the country, goes fourth round, so that's going to be a pretty big negative score. Obviously, Marvin Wilson being number six in the country, going undrafted, big-time negative score. Uh, Caitlin LeBourne, number 29 in the country, he hasn't been undrafted yet, but he's not going to get drafted. Uh, so, you know, big time negative score there. Stanford Samuels, uh, did he, he went undrafted, I believe, last year? I'm trying to recall now. But he's number, number 38 player in the country. So he went undrafted. DJ Matthews is at Indiana. He was number 51 player in the country. You know, if he can keep his stuff together, I think there's a chance he, he could do something, but, uh, very unlikely to be a top two round pick now as his, uh, as his rating would, you know, maybe correlate to. Cyrus Fagan, 97th. He's in NC State. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's not going to be a top three round pick. We'll see. Uh, let me see. Hampson Asheldean did get picked, but again, number 109. They're not going to lose that many points for that. 109 to where he got picked is not that huge of a drop off. Jalen Parks, 140, medically disqualified from football. Uh, so that was disappointing. He just never really could stay healthy. Zachondre White, I think, is, is he still with South Carolina? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he's still at South Carolina. So, um, uh, yeah, he went to JUCO and then he came back. Uh, so, we'll see what happens there. Probably not going to be a top three or four round pick, I would guess. Leonard Warner not going to be a draft pick. He was one, number one seventy four. 
Bailey Hockman was 280. He's not going to be a draft pick. Tamari Terry was not, was not a draft pick for not football reasons. He was number 350. Corey Durden was number 361, which I thought was, was too low, to be honest, and probably still do ability wise. But obviously, you know, keeping it together is, is another story at times. He's, he could get drafted for sure. I'm not going to close the book on that one. James Blackman, 389, not drafted. Trey McKitty, 397 was drafted, transferred out, but he's still credited to this class. So one of the few guys in this class who's actually given them positive value. Donis Thomas, uh, not reflected in this analysis, I think, because he was a Juco. Alexander Marshall, uh, definitely not 501. Ontario Wilson, not going to get drafted 741. Or I don't think he will. Do you think so? Probably not, right? Yeah, no, I, th- I think you're probably right about that. Uh, Trey Lawson, uh, not unless he's getting drafted for like USC. 745, not going to happen. Dante Sheffield, no, definitely not. Brady Scott, no. DeKalen Brooks, no. Man, that is, uh, yeah, I can see how that would be the fifth worst class of all time as far as drafting, uh, uh, you know, draft spots relative to recruiting expectation. Yeah, I mean, you've got some big, you've you got some big chunks there that you can explain as far as, you know, Wilson. I can't imagine. Yeah. Oh, I can't imagine when, when you're that high and you go undrafted that that's going to ding you in a system like this in an incredible manner. But yeah, I mean, you know, really you had Cam Akers hit in a pretty big way. And other than that, this class, um, all things considered has, has certainly left a lot to be desired. Uh, doesn't mean there hadn't been some decent players scattered through, but compared to what you thought you'd put together, uh, there's a whole lot of, whole lot of guys that, you know, high school resume certainly didn't transfer to college. The uh, the Texas one is wild. Do you want to run through that real fast, or, or yeah, you want to get moving? Uh, you know, it's it's May May the eleventh. I don't think uh, we're necessarily going to kill too many people. To look at Texas for a couple minutes. All right, so Texas twenty ten class. Get a load of this. So their score. So Florida State score was negative two forty. This score is negative four hundred two. This was number two class in the entire country. Number one in the Big Ten. I'm going to read these off. You're, you're, you're going to flip. So, number five, Jackson Jeffcoat. Did he get picked? Number seven in the country, Jordan Hicks. If he got picked, he didn't last in the NFL for very long. Receiver Mike Davis, number 13 in the country. I don't think he got picked. Reggie Wilson, strong side defensive end out of Texas, number 23 in the nation, the fourth five star in this class. This was when Mac Brown was really starting to lose it there at the tail end uh, at. Uh, uh, at Texas, he did not get picked. So they're at uh, four undrafted five stars already. Demar, let me see here. Demar, uh, Darius White, by the way, receiver out of Dunbar High School in in, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas. Pretty sure he went undrafted. Yeah, and he also went to Missouri, transferred to Missouri afterwards. So uh, five players in the top twenty-seven in the country, no draft picks so far. Demarco Cobbs, did he get picked? Nope. I'm going to keep running down this list here. He was number 47 in the country. Number 58 in the country, Tevin Jackson. Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, 74th in the country, Trey Hopkins. No. 75 in the country, Ashton Dorsey. I don't think so. 83 in the nation, <laughs> Chris Jones. No. Uh, 95 in the nation, Taylor Bible. I feel like maybe he did, but uh, only one guy on this list got drafted. So maybe it's him, maybe it's not. Uh, now we're finally out of the guys who were in the top 100 in the country. They had one, two, three, four. They had five more in the top 150 who were between 100 and 150. Adrian White, 
Carrington Bynum, Aaron Benson, Connor Wood, Adrian Phillips. Uh, and then they had a bunch of other guys who were four stars here on this list. Five more of those. Uh, Brian Jackson, Dominic Espinosa, Traylon Sheed, Greg Daniels, and John Harris. Did Case McCoy get drafted? No way, right? Like Colt McCoy did, but Case McCoy definitely did not. Man, that is incredible. Like that, that literally might be a record that is never topped. You want to talk about like, like the unbreakable records in sports? That, that could easily be one. That's a, yeah, that's impressive. I mean, the first names you listed off there, there's two linebackers, two of the biggest, biggest recruits in the country. I mean, Jeff Coat was, uh, I think anywhere between two and four overall, depending on where you looked. I mean, just, just massive names there that you're absolutely right. That is one that, uh, that will be hard to overcome. And I, uh, I certainly hope that Florida State doesn't, doesn't ever take a sniff at, uh, trying to beat that one because that's quite the record. I mean, it's almost impossible to sign five, five stars in a class anyway. And then you compound that with basically you're parlaying it with that, with none of them getting drafted is, is remarkable. So uh, real quickly, uh, while we're just sitting here talking, somebody told me something recently. I'm like, I've got an S-bud about that. You want, you want to know a, a stat in a sport that will never, ever, ever, ever be touched. Are you familiar with how many complete games Cy Young threw, bud? Uh, it's a ton. 749. Yeah, that's not going to, like, that's not even the same sport. Ever, ever, nobody's even going to contemplate that. So, yeah, when I heard that number, I was like, yeah, that's, that is, uh, that's ridiculous. I mean, theoretically, you could see, like, Cal Ripken's streak. You could see some of those things where they're at least possible. That, as you said, in today's baseball, uh, not a chance in hell. So, I mean, who was the league leader last year in complete games? Or last year is a bad example, but like 2019 ish, right? I'm going to guess what, three or four? I mean, I. Yeah, I would say three or four. I mean, which means. So 45 total in all of 2019 from. Three was the leader. Yeah, with Shane Bieber um, tied with Lucas Giolito, I guess. So, I mean, dude. He had 700, how many? 738, uh, I believe. I mean, so this guy would basically have to throw 250 years as the, as the current league leader in order to catch Cy Young. I, I shorted him, actually, 749. But yeah. That's pretty incredible. Nuts. Uh, all right, man. Real quickly, we'll thank our friends at Congruity. Been nothing but a great uh, partner for us. Uh, we've worked with him now for about six or seven months and uh, have been fantastic for us and fantastic for our partners. Uh, been great with Jonathan Select Shades over there. I've had nothing but fantastic experiences uh, with with Matt and his team at Madison Social. Whether it be helping you with HR, whether it be helping you with payroll, uh, so many different things that they can be of assistance with. Uh, Matt Lewis is who we would point you in the direction of. You can reach him on the phone, 844-247-4100, or reach him via email, Knowles, N-O-L-E-S, at congruityhr.com. All right, uh, so I guess the last little thing here, Quayshon Sapp, offensive lineman out of Georgia, is going to announce his commitment on July 3rd. I believe FSU and Alex Atkins and, and uh, Woodson and those guys who do Georgia have done a nice job recruiting him. I think he is a guard, but uh, but a good one, somebody who they have identified early on. They like him. I'm pretty sure I have a crystal ball in for him that's been in there for for quite some time. I know they feel good about him. They feel good about, about Kaniah Charlton. I think they're in a decent position with uh, Antavius Woody. Obviously, the Richardson kid out of Miami Central who has some connections to Tallahassee. 
And then we'll see what happens with Julian Armala and, uh, and Elijah Pritchett. But I might have to find a new hobby horse here because the offensive line is, it's like, do you remember that barge that was stuck in the canal like three or four weeks ago? Do I remember it? Yes. Yeah. Not, not all that long ago. Still fresh in the memory. There had to be a day when the engineers and, and whoever else was working on getting that thing freed, when they were like, all right, we got this thing figured out. We feel good about our plan now. We're still going to be taking a whole lot of crap for this for like the next probably three or four days. It's going to take that much longer to get this thing out. But at least we know how we're going to get it out. We know basically, like we see the path. I, I think that's kind of where they are right now. Like you're, you're, maybe you'll start to see some of that sand move away from from, from the huge barge. And uh, we brought more than one front loader. Uh, we're we're about to start making progress here. No, I mean it's uh it's incredible, man. To to think that maybe you know we're not not exactly as though we're going to be able to close the nice book on on these offensive line concerns and put it back on the shelf and know that it'll never be revisited. Uh, but certainly have taken the steps necessary to uh, address this and at least give yourself a you know give yourself a floor that doesn't have uh significant spots where you can, you know, step on a piece of rot and fall right through it. Uh, so uh, this is a, this is a good thing, a good thing. And uh Quayshon chap, somebody that we'll keep our eye on and keep you updated as this uh, announcement date comes closer. So uh, with that, bud, we can move into the listener question uh, part of the podcast. Always a uh, enjoyable part. Tommy uh, sends us a direct message here. Tommy also uh, is a law student bud and uh, wished that you had given him a better idea as to what he was getting involved with exactly. Uh, but he had gone back and started watching some old games. He said this was spurred on by listening to our Oklahoma conversation of a couple of weeks ago as far as what the uh, all-time uh, you know best team to trot out from a Florida State perspective of that iconic football drill. Uh, anyway, old games brought me to the 05-06 Orange Bowl against Penn State. Since this was the first season I was allowed to be awake after halftime, I truly have no idea uh, what happened during that season. These were the players an eight-year-old me worship. Sims, Buckley, Davis, Wimberly, Carter, Cromartie, Timmons, Washington, etc., etc. So what ruined this season? Am I looking at a very clear-cut uh, Weatherford and Jay, uh, Jeff Bowden answer, or was there more to it? How much more would a healthy Cromartie help this already solid defense? In your opinion, was Washington Booker backfield wasted who's this pat watkins guy uh <laughs> why the hell do the kickers love to break Noel fans hearts last bowden or paterno uh disregarding uh the paterno scandal so uh he thanks us for what uh what we do as far as producing the content and was just looking to get a uh, quick idea as to what that season uh was like okay so i was uh i was a junior at florida state during this time and i remember the season quite well so there's a very popular radio host named Colin Cowherd, who you guys may have heard of. He used to talk more college football than he does now, although he, I think he still has a soft spot for it, even though he's a, he's a West Coast guy. Uh, and after that opening game between Florida State and Miami, the proper reaction should have been, there's a whole lot of defensive speed on the field and two offenses that are just like Stone Age coached, right? But that was not ultimately the reaction. The reaction was, oh my gosh, these are like two of the best defenses college football has ever seen. And they're just absolutely amazing. And, and ultimately, for the first month of the season, that is kind of reflected positively. Although there were some cracks. 
They beat Miami 10 to 7. This is the, the famous Miami Muff game, if I recall, right? Like this was, yeah, this was a Monday night Labor Day game, uh, September 5th. Miami muffs the field goal at, at the end. Finally, the Hurricanes have, have some kind of negative special teams play at the end, like Florida State has had against them so many times. And they, that was the, the game FSU sacked Brock Berlin nine times. Oh, that's right. Uh, I, I remember it in vivid detail. I'm going to hit you with the name here. This guy did not play a major role throughout the rest of the season. But in this game, I think he was actually FSU's sack leader. Do you know who this player is? Yeah, as soon as you say it, I think I know. Isn't he like a safety linebacker hybrid? I believe it's Marcelo Church. Marcelo Church is the guy that, yeah. Yeah. This this is also a game that um, nine, nine could could have been dialed up by like an eight year old on a PlayStation two from a defensive perspective. Yeah, they they sacked Brock Berlin nine times in this game. So Tony Carter had one, Cam Wembley had two, Bunkley had one. Bunkley, by the way, incredibly intimidating photo at the combine. Uh, Sam McGrew had one, Marcelo Church had one and a half, Andre Flewellen had one and a half, and then Nefi Moffitt, that's a name for the past. Also had one and then uh, two interceptions, one by Kyler Hall and then one by Ernie Kyler Sims. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Kyler Hall had a beast in this game 12 tackles and a pick and a pass defense. We thought, man, this defense is amazing. And I didn't know any better at the time. Turns out Miami's offense was not that amazing. Um, come, come to find out here. Florida State then beats the Citadel 62 to 10, feeling pretty good. They go up there. They beat a ranked Boston College team 28-17. FSU rises to number six in the standings. They, they beat Syracuse 38-14. I remember the Syracuse win. I don't really remember the – didn't they screw around in the first first quarter and a half of that Syracuse game? Yeah. I mean, I, I remember um, even after the, the Wake Forest game <laughs> – Thinking that, uh, like, this was a, I don't know, I don't know that I necessarily saw the precipitous fall off that was about to happen, but thinking that this was kind of a very fraudulent five and zero football team. Yeah. So th- this is that. This is the Syracuse game they won at home. Um, I think the Syracuse game that that FSU screwed around up up there was either the year before or the year after. But uh, Chris Davis went went off in this one. Lorenzo Booker uh, had, had some had some nice plays too. This is we're rambling here a little bit, but we'll get to the first loss, which was Florida State losing on the road as a as the number four overall team in the country to Virginia, uh, twenty one to twenty six. A uh, particularly ugly game where it was actually twenty six ten, in like with twelve thirteen minutes left in the ball game, and then FSU got some garbage time points. Really didn't uh, didn't run the ball worth worth the damn in this game. And the passing was just not uh, not great. They they threw the ball fifty nine times for three hundred seventy seven yards, which is just terrible. I mean, yards per attempt six point four, adjusted yards per attempt four four, three picks, one touchdown. Sure, a couple sacks in there, and I think Virginia exposed some things. Also, wasn't that Marquise Hagens for UVA? It was mm-hmm. so. Hagens tore that defense up. They did not handle his mobility very well. He threw 36 times for 306, which is great. Two touchdowns, no picks. And uh, FSU would rebound. They beat Duke 55-24. They 
They squeaked by Maryland 35-27. But then their offense just went absolutely in the tank. They lost to NC State scoring 15 points. They lost to Clemson scoring 14 points. They only scored seven against Florida. This was the, uh, this was not, was this the last Zook year? No, that, that, that was, that was in, in Florida. No, this was, this was Myers first year in the swamp, right? Because Myers second year was 06. Uh, and then they beat Virginia Tech in the AC title game, which totally masked some of the issues. Uh, Willie Reed bringing bring a punt return back. Tremendous defense in, in that game. Uh, that wasn't, was, it wasn't Tyrod Taylor they were facing, was it? It was, um, no, no, it was Marcus Vick. That was the first ACC game there in Jacksonville. I didn't go to that one. A lot of my friends did. Listen to the numbers in this game. that we, we FSU won this game, okay? Well, it's, there's a reason why it's the Willie Reed game. But uh, yeah, dude. Yeah. They had 58 yards rushing. They had 225 yards passing. They were outgained first down-wise. They had 15 first downs to, to the Hokies, 24. Um, they were outgained by about 100 yards. VTech just could not hold on to the ball. They had four fumbles in this game, lost two, two turnovers, and, uh, and Willie Reed had a ridiculous 83-yard punt return. And in a game where nobody wants to score any points, if you have an 80-yard punt return for a touchdown, that's going to significantly tip the game in your favor because obviously nobody can move the ball which these teams could not. And then in that Orange Bowl, which went to triple overtime or double overtime, I'm trying to recall. It was, it was a long one down there in the Orange Bowl. Uh, FSU loses 23 to 26. It says OT1 in the box score, but you can't score 10 points in an, o- in an overtime. Yeah, I think it went at least, I was, I was down there for that game that night. Uh, I know it went to at least two. Um, I can't remember whether or not it made it way to a third. I mean, it was a, it was a, a catastrophe of kickers on both sides. Uh, I was in like the north end zone for this. Yeah, we we had some some missed kicks. We also just had some uh, not maybe not great you know, red zone management. FSU was one for three. <laughs> yeah, Penn State was one for three. So two of six on field goals. Really, really solid there. Uh, great punting in this game, by the way. Penn State eleven punts for four hundred eighty seven yards. Yeah, basically the 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 questioner Tommy is is largely correct. Like this was something where this was a this was not a national championship caliber defense. Although they did have a, a decent number of future pros on it. The offense was just not there at all. Like they didn't have any. There were pieces. I mean, there there were pieces. It was it was during this strange transition time where you saw some of the last of like the truly elite Bowden recruits start to fall off your roster, and you. You know, you knew you were going to have a hard time replacing some of these guys. And you still had a, um, you know, Lorenzo Booker. You still had a Washington. You still had some really nice pieces on the on the defensive side of the ball. But, uh, you know, you could kind of – you had a nice little taste there at the beginning, went through a rough spot, backed your way into a, an Orange Bowl game and, and almost won a rather sloppy, you know, game that certainly doesn't pair with, with a whole lot of modern decision-making in it. But – no, this was my uh, senior year of college. I remember the season well. I've, during one of the losses at the end of the year, I think it was after Clemson, my my best lifelong best friend called me and <laughs> started crying about how bad Florida State was. And I walked off uh, into a closet to take the call. And I, I walked out of the closet and my British girlfriend at the time, uh, who has no concept of sports or gave a damn about them at all, was <laughs> 
I'm sorry. Did you go off to have a cry about the football with your friend? And <laughs> That's awesome. So nothing, nothing, a little bourbon and, you know, final year of college won't get you up in your feels about it as you, as you see the year fall away. Man, it, it's, it's so rational how much we care about sports. All right. So, so Bob says, let's pretend there are two scholars available and then you could land whoever you want from the Notre Dame Buffalo offensive line guys who've recently entered the portal. Would you take two from that group or just one and save a spot for another wide receiver or defensive end? Which of the three do you like the best? Well, uh, I guess the three options here, but we don't know who the other defensive end uh, or receiver would be, right? I would probably not take another receiver at this point because I feel like if you have receiver injuries, you can revert to what you ran last year. And if the defense is better or if the offensive line is better, you, you can get the six wins, I, I think, doing that. So unless it's a real studly receiver, I would probably say no on that. Could be wrong. You obviously already got the Notre Dame guy. So the question really is, do you want the Buffalo kid who graded out last year as a guard, graded extremely highly, everybody seems to think he's a pretty good player, or do you want to try to wait and take a defensive end? There was a guy that jumped in the portal couple days ago, but now he's not in the portal anymore from defensive end. That's something that that I think they'll continue to monitor, but if they were sure about the guard with Buffalo, and again, look, we're, we're assuming here that Gibbons, the, the offensive lineman they just took from Notre Dame, is on scholarship. I, I don't. I, nobody's told me that he is, but nobody's told me that, that, that he's not. <clears throat> and it's pretty obvious at this point that, Ingram, you were right, that maybe not everybody they brought in on transfer is on scholarship this year. So there may be some, hey, come walk on for a year, be on scholarship next year. Don't don't count against the initial initial counter uh, type stuff going so on. Something that we first mentioned about six weeks ago or so. Uh, so, hell yeah, I, I think you've been on it maybe for longer than that. Yeah, man. yeah, you may be right, maybe longer. But uh, uh, by the way, uh, Tulsa, their best corner just jumped in the portal. So that's that's kind of interesting. He uh, he's one of the better corners in the AAC. Started for them for a couple of years. Tulsa had a really nice defense this year. That's obviously a place where Norvell and company have a connection. They've already used at least two scholarships, maybe three, on defensive backs this cycle in the portal. I have a hard time seeing that. I guess if we need to answer Bob's question at this point, I might actually prefer uh, to take a uh, to take another defensive end. But I think it's close. I'm not really going to turn down good offensive linemen. Yeah, the Gall kid out of Buffalo is the... One that I believe he's referencing. There's also a second Buffalo offensive lineman that's been loosely associated uh, with Florida State or just the transfer portal in general, Mike Nowitzki. Um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I would probably take the left guard. Just give me strength in numbers. Um, I'm all for trying to get more explosive players on the other side of the line of scrimmage. Uh, but, you know, for now, give me a, give me an idea that we can solidify the inside and you know, get get two guys that are good enough to tackle, but uh, just my opinion. I like it. All right. Corey asks, uh, hey, a lot of good news on the recruiting trail. I see a lot of extraordinary young men choosing FSU as their college destination. How should fans temper their expectations as we move closer to the fall season and beyond with maintaining these recruits? Let's say we have an extraordinarily successful season, maybe eight wins plus plus. Could you imagine? Will that be enough to hold the elite programs at bay for many of our top 2022 recruits? I guess I'll go first. Uh, by the way, oh, you're right. By the way, gave Shannon the call at, at Noel Home Loans. 
legendary team, super helpful guy. Uh, looking forward to working with him in the coming months as we look to buy a new home. Corey, good luck, man. Uh, that's that's awesome. And I hope you find what you're looking for. Wish we had a little more inventory at, at, in the market right now, but obviously with low inventory, you got to be ready to pounce. That's why you want to go ahead and give Shannon a call, 844-SHOE-LONE. I think if they win eight games, there would be very few recruits on this roster or, or in this in this class right now about whom I'd be worried about flipping. That's just me personally. It's not a guarantee, but very few, in my opinion, would, would be candidates to flip. And you you would have more than delivered on the pitch that, that hey, this is going to be an improved football team this year. And you still have playing time to sell. I, I If they had that kind of season, man, yeah, go, go ahead and feel free to drink. Like you win eight games, eight games, you could end up ranked with this schedule. In fact, that I'd be willing to wager that if you win eight games, eight and four, you will be a ranked team with with, with this level of schedule difficulty. I I think that'd be a huge success for them. If you go six and six, I still think for the reasons we outlined in this thing earlier, you have a decent chance to have a top ten class because I don't think a top ten class this year is what it normally is. But also, just so many other teams are not taking as many players. I still think they'll I still think they'll be okay, man. They're going to have more kids on the bottom of their class ranked in like the top five, six hundred, and less kids ranked like the top one thousand. And if you don't think that matters, that that definitely matters. By the way, are you worried at all if they win eight games? No, nah, I mean eight. Are you kidding me? Even seven. I don't think you know. You may have one that gets picked off or something, but you're certainly you know you're selling the message of progress. You're selling the message to recruits that you're you're going to be part of the change, uh, and you're selling a message to broader fan base of you know. Judge me on, am I doing, am I, am I walking down the pathway of being successful? Uh, you know, we certainly can't guarantee the end results, but they've certainly over the last six months or so done everything that you would want to see from a program as they kind of, you know, right the ship, go through a transition period, all the cliches you want to use here. Uh, but, you know, the, the path that you would have to take is, is the one that they uh, appear to be walking down. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how fans manage it. I mean, it's impossible uh, to really get people <laughs> uh, expectations, you know, people respond differently. And certainly people respond differently on a October evening after a couple bourbons and they lose a game that they don't think they're going to lose uh, three hours earlier. But, uh, you know, we'll see what it looks like. If you win six uh, wins, there'll probably be some questions and a few defections. Uh, but on the whole, I think you'll keep this class together, certainly with seven. And if you win eight, uh, I think you're, you'll actually have momentum behind you based off on-field performance which is something this program hasn't had um, since maybe the orange, uh, you know, the orange bull victory over Michigan. You want to go to Kessna? Kessna always uh, throws some interesting questions our way. We've got a couple that we grabbed tonight. Kessna starts us off. Well, I was curious to what degree players can organize their own off-season practices. I remember doing summer classes. I was a geek, I was uh, a geek back then and did uh, three summers of classes and seeing Canell or Busby or even Winky in my last summer doing practices with the receivers and backs. Is that still allowed? If so, do we know if uh, Case uh, McKenzie or, or Jordan Travis are doing anything in this department? Also, I'd love to hear how the offensive line is getting together and pushing cars around the parking lot or reviewing tape. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a fairly loosely structured thing, but you can certainly have guys go out there and, you know, go through route trees and everything else. Um, yeah, that, that, that has been occurring. I can say that. Uh, yeah. So to answer Keston's question, yes, it absolutely does occur. And your better teams are going to have your, your 
your quarterbacks and, and your leaders who were able to keep everybody together over the summer more and that they worked together quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, it's absolutely the expectation. It happens basically everywhere. It's not like, hey, some teams do this, some teams don't. It's also not technically required, but they're also not required to play you if you're a player. So if they know you're not showing up to those things, yeah, the strength coaches can go out there and watch the, the, the player run workouts just for uh, safety reasons. And then uh, you can bet that strength coaches report back to the head coach and, and the coordinators and position coaches about who was out there, who wasn't, who was taking it seriously, who was just goofing off. It's not as serious as like a, a, a you know a spring or a fall practice, obviously, because you're you're having some fun too. But um, that that definitely occurs a ton. I went to the uh, 1998 Bobby Bowden football camp and uh, sat there after practice and watched uh, that group go through that you know go through uh, route tree and skeleton. Just one, it was one of the more as a I think I was a seventh or eighth grader at the time. It was one of the more impressive things you see. And to this day, Lavernius Coles is still the most impressive athlete I've seen in person, just from just from a ability of a human to move in a <laughs> in a manner that you just don't think is possible. Uh but yeah, no, I, these these things that Kessna referenced, I remember watching them as an eighth grader or so and uh it was cool to see. A lot of a lot of just absurdly talented athletes out there during that period of time uh working during the summer. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Um as far as the offensive line, they're like eating glass right now to, to get extra tough and flipping tires. No, but I, I will say a guy that I am excited to see, and maybe we sell him short at times. Is not, I don't think we've sold his play short because I don't think he's been a good player so far. But I think he does have some ability just based on you know what I hear behind the scenes. Darius Washington, a guy who has basically always been hurt in the offseason and is now finally healthy. Knock on wood, that he remains so. But just what he can do with the full offseason lifting, I'm I'm excited to see. Maybe he's a guy who can take a large jump. Second question, because uh, I know you've talked a lot about this in the past, but how much of a challenge will it be for us to recruit a good uh, P5 offensive line based off the limited number of blue-chip offensive line recruits who come from Florida or South Georgia? So I actually don't think that the number from Florida and South Georgia is is super limited. Um, so I'm going to kind of disagree with, with, with the the premise of Kesson's question here initially. I, I think that I mean, maybe it's a little bit more abundant in, in some other areas, but there's still a bunch of talent in the state of Florida. I think it's a little bit more raw at times, so you may need to do a little more, bit more developmental and projection-based stuff if you're not able to get like the top two, three kids in the state, which ultimately like that's your goal is to get those dudes. Right now, it's a little bit tougher than it, it's been um, you know, maybe 10 years ago. But I... I I think that's that's not really something I worry about that much. It's just, I think at times they nitpicked recruits too much. Not the staff and 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 not Willie's staff, but like the latter couple couple years of, of Jimbo's staff, I thought they really uh, I thought they were a little bit too picky at times, and uh, they, they passed on some good players to pursue some great players they weren't going to get. And that's um, that's something I think with offensive line, you just seem to go ahead and keep taking, 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 and, and use. You know, a couple additional scholarships because it's a position that can really you know sink you in a way. Um, it's may not it may not tell you the greatness, but if you're really really bad, it, we, we've seen it can just kind of shut down the whole offense, and it, it can be difficult to scheme around in some ways. 
on a question of the evening uh, is I keep thinking about uh, McKenzie Milton winning the starting job and Travis having a flex type role similar to Cordell Stewart in his early days with the Steelers where JT lines up at various positions, including slot halfback, et cetera, or H back, uh, et cetera, allowing him to run throw and catch out of these positions, uh, hopefully creating nightmares for opposing teams. My favorite of these possible plays is JT in the slot, getting a direct snap via jet action, pulling up as he comes off the edge and having an RPO depending on what the defense gives him. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the best use of both of these quarterbacks? Well, I, I don't think that they're going to use Jordan just as a gadget guy. I think you're going to have to use both these guys. And obviously, Jordan's going to have to throw well enough to where teams don't play him as a wildcat guy. And KZ's going to have to run you know, well enough to, to where they don't play him as just like an air raid type dude. So, But at the same time, what, what Keston presents here is something I really think FSU should look into doing, which is you know, maybe have a series of game where it's not like you're scoring a million points. So like using a series to do this, I don't think is that crazy. Maybe you have one series of game that you're at in practice where you have packages where, where both quarterbacks are on the field. And, and maybe you can hit some big time plays out of it. Maybe if defenses start to play you a certain very conservative way, maybe you're able to rack up a couple of, a couple extra first downs and, and flip field position or go down there and score. I don't think this is crazy at all to do occasionally. I just don't think it's going to be your base. And I don't think he, like Jordan's going to be a slash player, you know, most of the time. Um, because it's just extremely hard to do to, to be the quarterback and then also do all that extra stuff. But if you did it as a, as a change up package, I, I think you could probably pull that off. Yeah. I mean, it'll be fascinating. It'll be fascinating how ultimately they use these guys, what they uh, try to do with Travis. We've talked an awful lot about it. Um, yeah. Very talented athlete. Who's uh, probably your most dynamic open field threat. So uh, they'll certainly be creative in how they use him. And uh, I look forward to seeing what that ultimately looks like. But uh, otherwise, Bud, I think that'll be it for tonight's Nolcast. A little bit longer than we probably planned, but uh, some conversation that was unforeseen and hopefully enjoyable uh, for our audience as it was for us. But uh, thankful to our sponsors, as always. Thank you to you, the listener. You're still listening at this point and uh, want to give us five stars on iTunes or wherever else you may find us. Gratefully appreciated. Uh, subscribe. Uh, if you are a allowed to do so or wanting to do so uh, from your preferred provider. And we'll be back next week to put together another Nolcast. All right, guys, five stars on iTunes. Thank you. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles. Go Knowles.